Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio, episode 115, CBD and the Treatment of Autoimmune Disease. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello, this is Dr. Michael Smith, and welcome to, or welcome back, to Fusion Health Radio, the autoimmune, complex trauma, and addiction podcast. Today, we're going to have a pretty interesting conversation about cannabidiol, or CBD, and the multiple ways that it actually impacts all of the processes underlying autoimmune disease, and I'll touch in on how that impacts things like PTSD, Uh, and addiction as well, although today's focus is going to be on the physiology of autoimmune disease and CBD. So let's have some fun. So to begin with, I'm just going to walk you through some basic science around chronic inflammation, stress and hormonal health, and a bit about neurotransmitter imbalances, just so that we can all appreciate uh, what we call pathomechanisms or the processes that are actually running in the background, the processes of multiple diseases, uh, mental, emotional states, things like complex trauma and addiction. Uh, it's my understanding and I guess my feeling that when you can look at how the problem exists and how the problem works, when you have a solution, if it's uh, diet, supplements, meditation, or CBD, it gives you a much more practical sense uh, and perhaps even a more tactical sense of what it is that you're doing and how to do the best you possibly can, uh, perhaps just by combining things uh, or focusing on the most effective things, but specifically based on the mechanisms that you're actually treating. And that's a big difference in perspective from, I don't like this symptom, make it go away, which, you know, we've all had those days. It's been my understanding as a clinician and as a teacher that the more people understand the mechanisms of what's going on, the more tactical and practical you can be about solving them. There's a big difference in medicine between treating the why and treating the what. So in this episode, I'm going to try and bring your attention and awareness into some of the dysfunctional mechanisms that are happening in chronic illness so that you can appreciate maybe several ways to solve each of these complex issues instead of just focusing on the symptoms or just focusing on one thing like cannabis. I'm a big fan of cannabis. I'm a medical cannabis patient. I value it greatly uh, as both a clinician and as a patient, but I'm also aware that we can get myopic uh, with respect to any tradition, uh, any medication, any substance. So as I walk you through this episode, I'm going to bring your attention to other things you can do along with medical cannabis uh, to help you make the biggest difference with respect to what's actually happening uh, in your health, which obviously I can't know anything about, but there's enough similarity with most people that I hope this will give you more uh, practical details. So after talking about inflammation and hormones and neurotransmitters, I'm also going to talk a little bit about your endocannabinoid system so that you can have a sense of how this all works. And especially if you're a person who's still a little bit reticent uh, around medical cannabis because uh, our culture obviously has had a pretty uh, black and white relationship with whether or not this is good for you or just some kind of illicit uh, drug for bad people. And uh, I hope to clear some of that up just by walking you through how this uh, actually works. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about contraindications and dosage and uh, uh, some other little complications that can come up. So hope you're feeling ready 
And uh, today we're going to go on a bit of a deep dive and a geek out uh, into why CBD is, in my opinion, going to change the way medicine is practiced in the future. I have to include this qualifier anytime I'm speaking about cannabis, especially if it's being recorded. Uh, because of licensing standards, I cannot clinically recommend the use of cannabis because it has not been researched in enough for it to be considered uh, appropriate for clinical application. However, uh, given that Chinese medicine has been using this medicine for about 5,000 years with written records of exactly what they've been using it for, uh, I feel comfortable speaking to that. And as a medical cannabis patient and researcher and teacher, I'm very inspired to share with you what I'm learning, but I just have to make that little caveat just because of, well, licenses and insurance and lawyers and stuff. So I apologize for that, but uh, I had to do it. Uh, maybe one last little preface is if you do have a complex diagnosis and you're really thinking about medical cannabis, make sure you're working with a cannabis experienced and preferably a cannabis certified clinician before getting really deep into this medicine, before combining it with other medicines, especially uh, heavy pharmaceuticals, uh, and or before coming off of any medications because you just feel that cannabis would be better without really checking first. So I just need to also make sure that that's been said because I have seen this go uh, fairly badly for people when they get a little bit dogmatic or religious about medical cannabis and throw everything into the proverbial backseat. Okay, so now we've done the lawyer bit, let's get into how inflammation actually happens. So medicine is kind of messy and physiology is messy and your immune system is the part of the mess that's actually in there making part of the mess and cleaning it up. And, and a pretty common way to see that is to recognize your body is always in a state of low-grade, chronic bacterial infection. That's just a normal part of day-to-day -day life. As we get older, they get uh, more destructive. As our immune system gets weaker, they become more dangerous. As we overuse things like antibiotics, we may be producing more uh, potent or virulent forms of microbacteria or other pathogens. So keep in mind that all day, every day, your body's basically fighting off a low-grade infection, which means there's a consistent day-by-day -day inflammatory status in your body. Now, stress can complicate that. Uh, pollution, toxins can complicate or aggravate that. Uh, addictive behavior, because of the stress and usually the biochemistry, depending on what you're addicted to, can make inflammation a lot worse. Chronic illness, especially autoimmune diseases, uh, they basically run on the momentum of inflammation in your body. People who have chronic pain, uh, just because of an internal stress mechanism, uh, often also have more inflammation, not just because it's causing the pain, but there's a secondary feedback loop. Uh, we call it wounded animal syndrome. I'll come back to you later. Your body reads pain as, as a very specific kind of information, which makes your body feel more distress. Some people have uh, chronic inflammation because of malnutrition and others because of an aggressive kind of malnutrition where they're actually eating foods they're allergic to or, or that are just known triggers for chronic inflammation. So it's a really good idea to uh, be mindful of all of that if you're dealing with anything that has to do with chronic inflammation. And a couple of other ones that you may or may not have heard of uh, People who are fairly obese produce their own inflammatory cytokines, which again dysregulates your immune system's reaction to everything else I just talked about. And some people with very specific hormonal imbalances can also increase inflammation. So 
uh, you basically, after all of that, you're probably going, I bet everybody has this. And of course, everybody has this uh, just to stay alive. But a lot of people today, I guess about 75, 80% of the people I see, uh, if not more, uh, the inflammation is always the first step because that's the biggest force of chaos and, and disruption to the rest of your body. Unfortunately, chronic inflammation is not very easy to diagnose. It's much easier to diagnose uh, inflammation, uh, especially through lab testing and things when it's a crisis, when it's chronic, when it's latent, when it's sort of spread out all over the place and your body's adapting to it and trying to maintain balance. Uh, you really have to dig around and know what you're doing to find other markers for chronic low-grade inflammation. And I've seen many, many patients' uh, blood tests uh, in my office uh, who other clinicians have looked at and said, oh, you know, you should be fine. And when you have a more correlative relationship with all of the numbers and, and what they mean on a lab test, uh, you're more likely to actually see that there's four or five different things that are suggesting different aspects of inflammation. And unfortunately, again, that's just not something most people are really willing to look at because they're looking to treat a crisis, not something that's been around for a long time, uh, which is, you know, how things are today. Which is unfortunate, but that is presently the standard of practice in mainstream medicine. If there was a worst possible influence for people with autoimmune disease, PTSD, or addiction, it would be more inflammation. And as I've mentioned, chronic inflammation is pretty much epidemic in the modern world. So for people who are dealing with more complex issues, you really, really need to focus on the inflammation first. And since we're talking about CBD today, CBD actually affects your inflammatory cascades in three different ways we're going to learn about in a bit. So uh, you've already got a really good ally if you have access to cannabidiol or CBD. If you look into stress and hormonal health, you're going to see that about 80% of the underlying processes of chronic illness are made worse by chronic distress uh, or the underlying physiology of trauma. 80%, just think about that. 80% of the processes, you know, the gas pedal uh, is stress. And most of us who have chronic illness are already experiencing the stress of our symptoms and pushing through the fatigue and or the pain. And that just adds more stress to the stress. So really uh, an important thing to take care of that and be as mindful and attentive to what causes your stress and how you can de-stress. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, and I'll share this with you because it's kind of uh, a hard to forget uh, opportunity, especially if you're a clinician. So, um, imagine you've come to see me as a patient and, uh, we've gone through your medical history and I look you in the eye with a very calm and nice smile and say, could you do me a favor? Uh, could you teach me how to relax? I'm just curious if, uh, you could share with me, you know, your favorite uh, technique or tactic. And I think about 2% of people that I've seen clinically go, oh yeah, well, I do this every weekend or I took this course or I, you know, I do my Qigong or my yoga or my meditation and this is my favorite way to relax. Most people give me this kind of, uh, kind of wide-eyed stare of, what do you mean? <laughs> so um, I'm not saying that to tease anyone or make fun of anyone. I'm just saying that it's an astounding thing to recognize that most of us do not see stress as something that we need to adapt to in a sequential way. We just see it as something that's not fun. And uh, I agree, it's not fun. But if you don't have an adaptive strategy to it, it's basically something you're carrying around that's chewing on you a little bit. 
One of the biggest disruptions around chronic stress is the overproduction of cortisol. And that's one of your main stress hormones, especially for long-term stress. What's important to be aware of, though, is that all of your hormones from testosterone to your estrogens to progesterone uh, to DHEA to other really important hormones, they govern how your body runs and how adaptable you are to pretty much everything that's going on. And the important thing to be aware of is that every one of them comes from cholesterol. So uh, if you've ever seen a steroid hormone pathway chart or uh, have a sense of what's going on, uh, in the more literal sense, then you'll get this right away. But what I would encourage anyone who's unfamiliar with how that part of your physiology works is to think of your hormonal system kind of like a garden and the irrigation or the water that comes into your garden to make everything grow all comes from the tap of cholesterol. So if we were to say you have a testosterone uh, you know, bed and an estrogen bed that you use to, you know, feed that part of your garden and grow those particular hormones or plants, you have to keep the irrigation giving them what they need. Now, if your body's under a lot of stress or you're under a lot of stress, or I guess you and your body are under a lot of stress, you're going to be putting a lot more of your cholesterol or your irrigation through the progesterone to, to cortisol pathway, which means a lot of your other hormones aren't getting the nutrients and the support that they need, which creates long-term hormonal imbalances. And that can be chaotic in every possible clinical situation for everybody. So by bringing that back into balance, you're making another huge step towards your health. And it's not that complicated to get uh, an endocrine panel or your uh, hormones uh, tested so that at least you have a strategy as to how to make things better, what to add, what to subtract. Another really scary part of chronic uh, stress is that high cortisol levels over time actually disorient your immune system. I'm gonna try to run through this uh, because it's a bit technical, uh, but I encourage you to look this up. So a part of your immune system's job is kind of like traffic cops. And I use the word traffic cops because the pathways are called TH1 and TH2. So it just makes it easier to kind of connect in your mind. Your traffic cop 1, TH1 pathway uh, is the part of your immune system that keeps activity happening inside your cells, fighting off viruses and stuff like that. Your traffic cop 2 or your TH2 pathway focuses on things that would look kind of like an allergy or the way your body would respond to a scratch or a bite in the sense that it's redness, swelling, pus, uh, you know, uh, more mucus and things like that. And, you know, your immune system needs balance between both TH1 and TH2 and they kind of have to swing back and forth. And as long as they can swing back and forth, you have a very adaptive and resilient immune system. Under the chronic chemical assault or hormonal assault of high cortisol, it actually uh, diminishes the activity of your TH1 pathway and aggravates the activity of your TH2 pathway. Now that might be annoying, but from an evolutionary point of view, it makes perfect sense because if you're under a lot of stress, which means you're probably being chased by something, or maybe you're chasing something, uh, you're at a higher risk for scratches, wounds, bites, and other things. So of course it makes sense for your immune system to be prepared for more redness, swelling, and uh, all the things that happen for a wound. So good strategy for about the last 2 million years, bad strategy for the last 200 years, or especially the last 20.
High cortisol levels can also disrupt some interleukins, but I'm not going to get into that today. I just wanted you to appreciate that chronic stress can not only mess up your steroid hormones, it can also distort how your immune system works. And there's been recent research uh, coming out that chronic stress also has mechanisms that make a leaky gut worse. And I think that's been common sense for most people, but now we can actually see kind of a sequence and a step-by-step way that that happens. And if you're a person with autoimmune disease or have been uh, aware of kind of where functional integrative medicine is going, everyone with chronic illness, especially inflammatory illness, and very much especially neurological and or autoimmune conditions are made much worse by a leaky gut. And that happens as a chronic low-grade process, like all day, every day. But it can also happen that if a combination of stress and perhaps eating the wrong food or taking the right or the wrong supplements and you know uh, for your situation can actually trigger an even more dangerous traffic cop and we call that one the th17 pathway and that pathway is kind of like a red alert um, process we actually call it a cytokine storm because if your th17 pathway goes on Now your body is going to become very aggressive with respect to inflammation, with respect to swelling, with respect to compartmentalization, uh, the production of what are called immune complexes, and a whole bunch of other stuff that probably each one of them should have an episode. But if you can't appreciate that your immune system is always trying to balance everything out and take care of you and fight the bad guys, every once in a while it can actually have a little bit of a freak out. And that's often when a lot of clinicians are actually seeing patients is just at the end or the beginning or the middle of a TH17 cytokine storm. So we want to avoid those as much as we can. And with CBD, because of its effect on inflammation, uh, deeper stress tolerance, anxiety, uh, and reorientation of a lot of fight or flight background chaos, CBD is also a profoundly good ally for maintaining a resilience to just chronic stress. And I'll get into the mechanisms uh, in a bit. And just because I'm speaking of hormones right now, I just want to bring up the relationship of PMS uh, to cannabis. It's been my experience that about almost 100% of uh, the patients I see who are using a combination of oral CBD and uh, a bit of THC and then a fairly high, pretty low, uh, high CBD, low THC suppository, uh, vaginal suppository, a few days before their period, uh, have much less PMS, much less cramping, much less clotting. So it's a really good idea if that's a concern for you to make sure that, again, if you can get access to CBD, and especially combinations or ratios of CBD that would be uh, say two to one THC to CBD orally, and then four to one uh, CBD to THC vaginally. That is usually the way it goes. And I'm sp- I'm saying that from research. I'm not saying that as a prescription, just to be clear. Uh, and that's research on people that uh, are patients of mine that have chosen on their own to use medical cannabis. And because I work with these people, uh, I do my best to help them make good choices around harm reduction and avoiding contraindications. But just in case uh, I haven't clearly stated that I'm not recommending this out loud, I just, I'm just going to have to bring that up. 
So that gives hopefully a, a sense of what's going on with inflammation, stress hormones. And now I just want to spend a few minutes talking about neurotransmitter imbalances because that's a huge part of long-term well-being and it's a massive part of anyone's capacity and patience to focus on the right protocols that take longer periods of time and the more uh, higher capacity of stress tolerance to have the patience to focus on treatments and uh, medications and other things that aren't as powerful as really strong drugs because that's a big transition for people and you have to have the resiliency and the patience to kind of bet on bet or invest on the long term instead of react to the short term. So when you're looking at neurotransmitters, which are basically molecules of information and molecules of emotion, we have what are called the four C's. So there's cofactors, clearance, competition, and conductivity. Cofactors are the nutritional substrate that actually makes up a neurotransmitter. So if you have enough B12 and enough vitamin B6 and enough vitamin C and enough oxygen and a few other things, then you can make certain neurotransmitters. But if you don't, then you can't. So a big part of neurotransmitter health is making sure that you have the nutritional status to actually make them all. Another one is clearance. And if you're new to how neurotransmitters work, they basically go from neuron to neuron inside your nervous system. So neuron A kind of throws it like a softball through the synaptic cleft uh, to neuron B and it's sending that message. And if neuron B has had enough of that message or doesn't need any more of the message, then there are enzymes within that synaptic cleft that will actually just sort of gobble up the neurotransmitter because it's no longer necessary. Unfortunately, those enzymes that break up neurotransmitters are also complex in the sense of they're not easy to make and you really do have to have abundant health to, to keep all of that clearance active. And that can be a big source of problem for people because now you have unnecessary amounts of information uh, or uh, emotional information uh, moving through your nervous system when it's no longer necessary. And then there's competition. So that happens when, say, an oxidized uh, mineral or metal gets lodged in a receptor that's meant to be for a neurotransmitter. So now the message can't get through because someone's blocking the door. Uh, there's much more complicated ways to get into that, but I'm trying to keep that as visual and simple as I can. And then there's one last part we call conductivity, and this has to do with uh, calcium ion channels and some really trippy uh, bioelectric uh, aspects of how neurons actually mobilize uh, neurotransmitters through their surface. And uh, there's an electrical component to that that can be either too uh, resistant, which means it takes a lot more energy to get the message through the neuron, or it can be too fragile, which means it takes almost no energy to get the message through the neuron. And that creates kind of an informational cascade that can cause other problems. So that's probably more than most people ever really needed to think about about that. But I just want to make sure you're aware that when you're thinking of neurotransmitter health, it's not just about more serotonin or more dopamine. It's about having a healthy neurotransmitter system as well as healthy neurotransmitters. So as I mentioned, your neurotransmitters need things like uh, B vitamins and uh, other nutrients. They also need a lot of trace minerals and they really need a lot of very specific complex proteins. I mentioned, uh, say, there's tryptophan for serotonin, there's tyrosine for dopamine in your thyroid. 
And there are a lot of other unique proteins that you need uh, to keep your neurotransmitter system working. And as you may guess, the fastest way to get a lot of that is uh, more high gelatin or gristle meats or having lots of bone broth in your diet. And to get those trace minerals, you want to focus on things like kelp or uh, alfalfa. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that I encourage all of my patients who have chosen to use medical cannabis, especially if they smoke cannabis, to use a trace mineral supplement. And there's a really important reason why. So if you're smoking, say, a joint every day or twice a day or something like that, try and imagine that as you're burning up that plant material and whatever you have wrapped around it, you're inhaling burning oxidized molecules, which can be fun in some ways, but when you have burnt oxidized minerals and metal molecules and they come in through your lungs and your body tries to get rid of them as fast as they can because they're a source of free radical activity and inflammation, they often get bound into receptor sites that take, say, a, they, they, say the receptor site needs magnesium and now you have some oxidized magnesium that doesn't actually work properly stuck in the receptor. So that's why a lot of people who are chronic for many years, uh, in my experience, have a a similar kind of facial tone and facial color and a few other things because they're all jammed up with uh, basically heavy metal toxicity, uh, but not necessarily from the literal heavy metal sense, but from the oxidized uh, minerals and metals from smoking all day. Now that happens from smoking anything, but I'm just trying to bring your attention to uh, that choice for using medical cannabis. So if you're taking a trace mineral supplement, uh, again, powdered kelp and alfalfa and things like that, or some really, there's some really great high-end stuff out there, but it's more expensive. Now, fundamentally, your body has access to those trace minerals and uh, metals that you need, but they're not oxidized. So at least you're going to have the receptor sites functioning as well as you can. And by maybe moving towards more ingestible cannabis or using smokable cannabis through vaporizers where you're getting less unnecessary oxidized minerals and metals, then you're going to have better receptor site function and, and more importantly, better neurotransmitter balance because that's what this is really about. And there's another benefit to having a good trace mineral supplement in your diet uh, or just having a lot more trace minerals in your diet in general is that it actually enhances your endocannabinoid system, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But it's important to be aware that that fundamental system in your body is everywhere. It's working all day, every day. And it also runs on similar nutrients um, and minerals as your neurotransmitter system because they're kind of paired systems in a way. So no, I'm not trying to sell you a box of trace minerals. Just letting you know that Uh, If you're planning on using cannabis a lot or you've already been using cannabis and especially if you've been smoking it for a long time, please find that to protect yourself from any kind of long-term damage. If you're taking this as a medicine, you might as well make it as medicinal as possible. So a couple of more little factoids for your neurotransmitter system. One is chronic inflammation actually uses up your neurotransmitters and or it interferes with their balance and their production. So when you're looking at what I've just spoken about with respect to chronic inflammation, uh, chronic stress, which also feeds back into chronic inflammation, that whole environment is just not conducive to proper neurotransmitter health or function. When we think of the gut-brain axis, of leaky gut, of your microbiome, uh, and all of the things that can happen in your belly, 
If you haven't heard this, 95% of your serotonin is made in your gut, 60% of your melatonin, and 50% of your dopamine are made in your gut. So by maintaining proper gut health, as well as trying to maintain the rest of your physiology's well-being, you're going to have a much faster bounce back to feeling more like you than almost anything else I can imagine clinically. So given that most of your neurotransmitters are made in your gut, please take the time to really focus on your microbiome, your gut health, your mucous membrane, uh, all of the digestive organs and their functionality, because that's really the engine of your entire vitality and your ability to heal. I know that's just common sense, but it's easy to get a little bit lost in the the, the forest, as the old expression goes, because there are so many things going on in, in the internet and you know around health that we can get kind of distracted. So it's always good to focus on the ba basics, especially now that we know how much more complex the basics really are and how important they really are. One other aspect about neurotransmitter imbalances that's kind of obvious, but you don't really think about it until you do, is that if you have a lot of neurotransmitter imbalance, you're going to be a person, for biochemical reasons and very personal reasons, who is more likely to seek self-soothing behavior from a more addictive point of view, a more comfort food point of view. There's more likelihood of using stimulants or harder intoxicants. Uh, many more people are prone to becoming more functional alcoholics or you know, drug users or even cannabis users in the chronic sense because we're not using it medicinally, we're using it reactively. So when your neurotransmitter system is really out of whack, you're, you know, the compulsion to satisfy your cravings is almost four times higher when your neurotransmitters are out of balance than your cravings would be if they were in balance. So if you can focus on inflammation, if you can regulate your stress, if you can rebalance your neurotransmitter system, you're most of the way there to being you, and then it's just doing the work and taking the time to heal the rest of your body. So I just want to share this a little bit because I, I have Crohn's and colitis. So CBD is really good for your neurotransmitter system uh, for many reasons we're going to learn about, but it's also really good for your neurotransmitter system because it's one of the best ways to heal your gut. So I'm just going to walk you through how that happens, and it's pretty technical. Because of CBD's effect on neurotransmitter receptors, your sensitivity to melatonin goes up in the membranes of your gut. And melatonin has a lot to do with membrane transport and mem membrane in integrity. So when you're having CBD regularly, especially with a leaky gut, your melatonin receptors are more sensitive, so your collagen synthesis is more com uh, complete. And it also down-regulates an inflammatory process that makes what's called alpha-gliadin antibodies, which are actually the things that attack your uh, collagen and your mucous membrane. So having less alpha-gliadin antibodies means you can rebuild your gut faster. And a lot of people, if you're familiar with gliadin that comes from gluten, that comes from you know wheat and uh, barley and rye, that becomes a vicious cycle for a lot of people with gut health. And it's not something that I've heard talked about a lot, which is why I just wanted to go into it quickly because, you know, as they say, all disease starts in your gut and therefore all health starts in your gut. And it really starts with respect to that membrane. And CBD is your best ally, along with diet and everything else, to as quickly as possible rebuild that membrane. So I hope that gives you an overview as to what chronic illness is like in the sense of inflammation, hormonal imbalance, neurotransmitter imbalance, and all of the fatigue, stiffness, soreness, swollen, bloated, 
uh, insomnia and everything else that goes along with it. Uh, so that hopefully you feel inspired and motivated to do everything that you can to help your patients, uh, your family members, or yourself use as many opportunities as possible, especially CBD if you have access to it, uh, based on research and my experience as a patient. So before I get into the endocannabinoid system, I'm just going to take a, about a one-minute little commercial break here. Uh, just to let you know that uh, I've been shifting my websites around. So if you haven't heard, my uh, main clinical website is now integrativehealthdetective.com. And the website I focus more on addiction and trauma is called somaticmindfulness.org. If you're feeling like you want a bit more support with uh, embodied awareness, mindfulness, perhaps learning some Qigong and breath work, there's a course coming up in mid-late October 2019. Um, if you go onto the somaticmindfulness.org website, you can find it there. It's three months of really deep diving into uh, embodied awareness, breath work, mindfulness, and qigong. And it's one of my favorite things to share with people because it's a very broad toolbox, but it can take you very deep if you, you know, if your practice is consistent. Okay, so let's learn about medical cannabis and your endocannabinoid system. If you're unfamiliar with cannabis, and this is who I'm speaking to at this point, because if you know about it, you do, and if you don't, well, now you will. Humans have been using cannabis for, well, probably roughly a million years just as a plant to make cordage and to nibble on. And as human culture evolved and we eventually developed fire, then we began using cannabis, not just as a source of cordage or string, but as a more complex food source and eventually as a spiritual ally, a shamanic uh, medicine, and as a deep healing medicine, not to mention all of the health benefits of the seeds. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention, that humans have been using cannabis for many reasons for a long time. More interestingly, though, the endocannabinoid system has been a measurable thing in all vertebrate uh, species from the ocean to the land for the last 300 million years. So when it comes to any concerns people have about using cannabis as a drug, the only reason cannabis works in your body is because you have receptors for those molecules because you have a mirrored system with molecules that are already very close to the chemicals in cannabis. So just for people who, who still feel like it might be something bad or scarier that you should only find in back alleys with, you know, sketchy looking people. Cannabis works and has worked forever because it's containing chemicals that actually help your physiology do things it's already doing. In no way is it bad for you. To the best of my research and knowledge, no one has ever died from the use of cannabis, ever. So it's not 100% safe in the sense that if you're using other drugs or you have no experience with it, that it couldn't cause a problem. But statistically, it's the least likely thing to cause problems. And I'll get into more details with that a bit later. So just one other cool little insight that I've heard from a lot of other researchers is that some people have the belief or the understanding that cannabis has had a lot to do with the evolution of the human brain, especially with respect to our associative capabilities, uh, the reason we like create music, and especially the fact that human beings have so much complex language. And this is a funny way to say it, but in a way, you know, we all become poets when we're high. 
So there's a lot of research and a lot of evidence that the reason why humans are crafty, smart, and really enjoy uh, well-spoken and thought-out ideas and really enjoy music could be because of the way cannabis and the endocannabinoid system uh, have actually helped support the growth of the, well, the direction of the growth of the human brain. Now, I can't say if that matters at all uh, or if it's actually true or not 100%, but it is an interesting thing to consider with respect to evolution, adaptability, capacity for each of us to be really 100% aware of ourselves as human beings in a very certain way or in a very specific way. So your endocannabinoid system actually functions through two primary receptor sites. One is called CB1 and one is called CB2. And those two receptor sites actually work through uh, endocannabinoid uh, molecules uh, like neurotransmitters. That one is called anandamide and the other one is called 2-AG. I'm not gonna get into the details of that too much. Uh, but there are about 10 other candidates right now for endogenous uh, cannabinoids or molecules inside your body already that can activate the CB1 and CB2 receptors. So we're still learning a lot about this, but we know for sure that the endocannabinoid system is an essential foundational uh, regulatory system, especially with respect to your immune system, your neurotransmitter health, and your hormonal health. Your endocannabinoid system also includes uh, the necessary precursors that make your endocannabinoids, and then there's the clearance, competition, and conductivity aspects of your entire neurotransmitter system as well. So your neurotransmitter system and endocannabinoid system kind of layer over, over each other a lot, and we're going to learn specifically about how in a bit. I just wanted to make sure you had a sense that it does require support. It's not something that's just automatically going to always do the right thing. So this terminology is a bit fancy, but uh, I'll break it down. Your endocannabinoid system fundamentally is a homeostatic and allostatic regulator. It's continually working to maintain a state of biological balance and biological resiliency to deal with extremes. So homeostasis is all about keeping things in the middle, like your body temperature. And there's a lot of fine detail to maintaining homeostasis across every system in your body. And I think of, say, homeostasis, like trying to balance something like a broomstick on your nose. So the homeostatic influence of your endocannabinoid system is, you could say, a refining uh, element of physiology around things like hormonal health and neurotransmitter health. It just works on a finer, more precise level of balance. And when you look at allostatic regulation or bouncing back from an extreme, uh, say if you're doing some breath work and then plunging into cold water and then running into a super hot uh, sauna or something, the endocannabinoid system would be the thing that makes the elastic resilience of your whole body more elastic, but also to allow your metabolism and your whole body to bounce back more uh, efficiently and resiliently from the extremes. So that's a pretty amazing thing to consider that we have a regulating system for our regulating systems that make them make them work more efficiently and effectively. Another funny image about the homeostasis versus allostasis that may help you if that doesn't feel quite clear to you. Imagine that you're uh, flying a plane. Homeostasis would be landing your plane and putting it to a, you know in, in a place where uh, it's in storage for a long time and there's nothing really to worry about. Allostasis, on the other hand, would be flying your plane through a storm. 
So maybe that gives you a bit of an image as to what homeostasis would kind of look like in the sense of your plane parked on the ground. And allostasis is you white knuckled holding onto the, you know, steering uh, of your plane, just trying to get through a storm. So uh, again, your endocannabinoid system makes all of those work just a little bit better. So as I mentioned, there's the CB1 receptor and there's the CB2 receptor and they're on pretty much every structure and cell in your body in some way. So when you're looking at your immune system cells, there's much more CB2 receptors and much less CB1. And that's because the CB2 receptor can have a lot to do with determining the kind of immune reactions you have and uh, how rapidly your immune system may overreact and actually cause more destructive uh, damage to your system in the sense of those cytokine storms. Uh, THC can bind to the CB2 receptor and activate it, which can make THC more anti-inflammatory and more immune regulating. And there's a lot of research showing that THC, because of its effect on the direct activity of your immune cells, uh, that it can help, especially in inflammatory conditions like Crohn's arthritis and multiple sclerosis. And that's based on actual uh, present research. When you're looking at the endocannabinoid system and the opportunity to effect it through cannabinoids, uh, there's two things that you want to be aware of, or I guess one condition you need to be aware of if you're new to this. When you have the raw cannabis plant, even if it's dried, what you're going to have inside of those plants are called cannabinoid acids. And if you uh, were to think of like THC, you'd have THCA for the acid or CBDA for the uh, cannabidolic acid. So we actually have to take most cannabis products that you're not smoking and heat them up in a process called decarboxylation. And that frees up the cannabinoid acid into an active cannabinoid. So now CBDA turns into CBDA and, you know, et cetera. So there's probably about a hundred known uh, other cannabinoids that are still being researched for their exact effect. But my hope is in with the next five years that we'll have access for patients to uh, medical products uh, or medicines, I guess, that are specifically high in the right cannabinoid for the right effect. So another way that your endocannabinoid system affects your health are through terpenes. Now terpenes are what are called aromatic hydrocarbons, which basically means that aromatic, they smell, uh, but it also means that they're, they're a fairly volatile kind of molecule in the sense that they have a lot of activity. So I'm going to just talk about two or three of them just to give you a sense of what terpenes are about. It's important to keep in mind that THC is just THC and CBD in a way is just CBD. When you add certain terpenes to them, their effect is different. So you may have heard that there's a kind of uh, cannabis called sativa and a kind of cannabis called indica. And sativas are more well-known for making people creative and excited and social and, uh, you know, artistically enthusiastic and inspired. Whereas indicas, we often say indicouch because they're more likely to just make you feel uh, sleepy and tired and just wanting to kind of curl up on the couch. And that isn't because of a difference in THC or CBD. It's because of a difference in terpenes. So here's a, probably the most this, I believe that myrcene, the terpene, uh, myrcene is the most abundant uh, in cannabis. I think it's about 20% of all the terpenes in the plant. 
Myrcene is also in other plants, like hops and lemongrass, and I've heard that it's actually fairly high, or at least tangibly high, in uh, dried mangoes. So when you're looking at that effect, what myrcene is mostly used for is to help people with pain and to help people feel relaxed and to help people sleep. So it's not the one that's going to make you want to go running around and painting your, your house in 19 different colors at once. It's the one that's going to make you, again, just curl up and want to take a nap. Uh, Myrcene is also known as uh, an anti-inflammatory, uh, especially, especially for gastric ulcers. Another terpene that's fairly well known is called beta-caryophylline, and it's found in hops as well as uh, the capaiba tree. And uh, beta-caryophylline itself is actually an analog uh, as a molecule to some of the effects CBD has in your body. So when you're looking for uh, especially things that are going to help with inflammation and pain, strains of cannabis that are high in both myrcene and beta-caryophylline are a really good idea. Another tripping called linalool is well known for its anti-anxiety and anti-inflammatory effects, but it's also one of the ones that has been researched around uh, any convulsant activity or helping people find relief from seizures. Another one called limonene is found in the rinds of most citrus fruits. Uh, rosemary and peppermint, it's found in a lot of uh, specific Chinese herbs, uh, which I only know the names in Chinese really in my head. Uh, but they're often made from the peels of different uh, citrus fruits. And uh, that specific terpene is used for cancer prevention, for inflammatory respiratory conditions. And it mediates a really unique hormonal kind of car accident that can happen around uh, weight loss. So for people who are really trying to reactivate uh, the fat loss process in their body, those food sources, those Chinese herbs or cannabis strains that are high in limonene would be the best ones to make that happen. Uh, one other one is called humulene. Uh, it's also in hops, basil, sage, and um, cloves. And it's known as an antifungal, antibacterial, uh, and anti-inflammatory. And it can be used both internally and externally, uh, especially for certain kinds of uh, fungal infections and things like that. So that gives you maybe just a, a real quick sense of what the terpenes are all about. Cannabis also has flavonoids, uh, like bioflavonoids that you would want to have in lots of uh, plant foods. Uh, there's not a lot of research on exactly which ones do what, but it's just another thing for us to kind of nod to each other and agree that, wow, cannabis really is a therapeutic storehouse of potential bioactivity. And that's especially true, or perhaps primarily only true, if you're ingesting it, because a lot of these things would be destroyed if you were smoking it. So let's dive into the actual endocannabinoid system and its uh, and how it helps us resolve certain kinds of symptoms. So when I look at CBD around inflammation, stiffness, and pain, which are things I see a lot, one of the ways CBD affects that is through what's called the TRPV1 or TRYP1 receptor. And it's throughout your body, but especially in connective tissue. And when CBD binds to that receptor, it actually mediates the perception of pain and the secondary production of inflammation in your body. And it can also help a little bit with the actual increase in temperature and swelling uh, around a wound site. The TRYP1 receptor is also called a valinoid receptor because it was first really researched using uh, a terpene that's in uh, vanilla. 
and that terpene is called eugenol. And uh, it actually is known to be uh, something that binds to or activates the TRYP1 receptor. So uh, for myself as a cannabis patient, when I'm making my own CBD oil, I usually add some uh, non-alcoholic glycerin-based uh, really good vanilla and then I make that into an oil so that when I'm using it on a regular basis, uh, any kind of chronic pain or stiffness or anything else that may be happening feels a lot better and it works really, really well. So just one of those kind of common sense things to be aware of because you really want to make the terpene activation uh, direct the cannabis molecules to do exactly what you want them to. The TRYP1 receptor, the TRPV1 receptor, uh, is also... Uh, activated by anandamide, one of the fundamental endocannabinoids that you already have. So it's just to give you that sense that the more traffic you can line up towards that receptor, the less pain, stiffness, and swelling and inflammation you're going to have. So as you can see, the, the more things that we put together to activate these receptors, the less you have to rely on just cannabis in the sense that it might be expensive and the more efficient and resilient your whole body is going to be because you're coming at these receptors in multiple angles instead of just with one repetitive uh, chemical. And receptors don't really like the same kind of message all of the time. So it's good to have groups of them uh, come in and work together. Another way that CBD is well known for its effect on inflammation and anxiety is through what is called your adenosine receptors. Now you may have heard the term adenosine when you're uh, researching how caffeine works. So adenosine is basically one of your neurotransmitters that uh, activate going from rest states to active states and active states to rest states in the sense of waking up and going back to sleep. And it's the caffeine's interference with that that actually makes us feel more alert because we can't feel the normal sedating effect of adenosine. And CBD does a similar thing, it just does it in a slightly different way. So I bring that up because uh, it's interesting to be aware of, but more importantly, uh, when people use CBD with coffee, you don't feel the intensity of the coffee as much and you feel it a little bit longer. And having said that, quite a number of people find that they feel a different kind of restless and a different kind of uh, reactivation of their anxiety if they have caffeine or a lot of caffeine with CBD. So that's something I would encourage you as a patient or as a person or as a clinician or a researcher or whatever you're up to, to uh, have your notepad around the next time you're having CBD with some caffeine and see if you notice the difference. Because the more we all know about this and the more we can all share about this, the more we're all going to eventually understand some of the deeper uh, mechanisms just from an empirical perspective. So again, the receptors for adenosine, uh, they can regulate uh, inflammation throughout your whole body. So again, that's another avenue for CBD to help you. There's a, another receptor called the PPAR receptor or peroxisome proliferator activation receptor. And uh, that's on actually the surface of the nucleus of your cells. So now we're talking about an intracellular uh, capacity for CBD to help you. And that PPAR receptor specifically is immune modulating and it has an anti-cancer benefit, uh, which has to do with how CBD can reactivate uh, normal apoptosis or cellular death on, on time. 
And that's a really important thing in the study uh, around cancer and cannabis right now is how that process actually happens. And another thing that this PPAR uh, receptor works with um, when, when we get it moving properly is that it degrades the amyloid beta plaque that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, I just want to throw this out that half of the patients with Alzheimer's don't have amyloid beta plaque, but we knew that uh, the amyloid uh, plaquing happens because of inflammatory conditions that are damaging or glycating uh, free proteins in your nervous system. So there's evidence that this is uh, in some way reversing or uh, changing that the momentum of that entire process. So it may not be specifically treating a specific vector for Alzheimer's, but it's definitely clearing up part of the process that puts damaged proteins onto neurological membranes. So uh, that may or may not have made perfect sense, but uh, it's just another mechanism for CBD to impart more health, more longevity, uh, and to, in a way, defend people from some of the more complex chronic things that are, you know, we're all kind of worried about Alzheimer's nowadays. So uh, if you're using CBD for a specific condition, you're going to have that as a secondary benefit. If you're just thinking about CBD in the sense of long-term uh, overall well-being and longevity, it's a good idea for sure from my research perspective. I've mentioned this before, but I just want to bring this up again, that CBD is kind of like a multi-tool. It has a lot of different jobs. And if you want it to do a specific job, then you're going to need to have allies, cofactors, uh, and maybe other uh, molecules or supplements or uh, conditions on board to direct CBD's activity to do exactly what it is you're trying to get it to do. So I just want to bring that up again because I'm going to get into a few more uh, ideas around combinations. And uh, I just wanted you to have a moment of, of reflecting on why that's so important. So an, another benefit of CBD uh, with respect to osteoporosis and cancer is that it's actually an antagonist or it slows down what we call the GPR55 uh, receptor and that receptor actually activates what's called bone reabsorption which means uh, as you build your bones they're kind of like a bank account and if you don't uh, if you have the need for those nutrients in another way the GPR receptor if it's signaled properly will release what you've stored in your bones back into the rest of your body so by down regulating that particular uh, activity in the body you're slowing down the release of what's stored in the bank account of your bones. And that's how it's so good at affecting uh, osteoporosis. In a different pathway, it can also help with Alzheimer's disease. And in another way, uh, because of that GPR receptor site, it can also slow down the proliferation of cancer because it's the GPR uh, activation that activates proliferation. So by, again, slowing down or downregulating that process, you're slowing down or downregulating the proliferation of cancer. So a really important idea. Now, when we're looking at how CBD is doing all of that, I'd actually probably want to chalkboard and, uh, you know, able to see your face to see if you're actually getting the more complex parts, which is why I'm not going to get into it here. But when you're looking at immune modulation, inflammatory response, and a few other really unique processes that have to do with CBD and your bones and your immune system, the optimal choice is, in my experience as a researcher, uh, would be to combine 
uh, your CBD with vitamin D3 and uh, vitamin K2. And if you're in a flare-up, to take it probably two or three times a day. And that's what I do every time I'm having a flare-up, and it really makes a huge difference. And it's probably kept me off having to reach out for pharmaceuticals at least once in the last five years. And there's a part of the background physiology of this that's a little bit complicated, like I mentioned. And there's a lot of new research on this, uh, but I don't have anything really, really rock solid yet to share with you. But as soon as I do, I think I'll do an episode specifically on this new uh, bit of research. So as I mentioned, your bones are like a bank account and they store a lot of different things that your body may need for later. And there's a a kind of hormonal activity around um, something called osteocalcin. It's recently been shown through research that osteocalcin is a secondary mediator for chronic stress reactions. So it's really an interesting thing to consider that the resiliency of how well you store uh, nutrients and other things in your bones Uh, changes the activity of this uh, mediating hormone that uh, can actually give you a more grounded and resilient response to immediate and longer-term stress. And it's interesting from a Chinese medicine point of view that we always talk about this concept of, you know, jing qi shan or your kind of essence and your energy and your spirit, and that the essence uh, is, or your jing, is something that's kind of stored in your bones and your brain. And your jing is, in a way, uh, a kind of adaptive bank account for you around stress. So here we are in 2019 measuring some of the activating systems that people thousands of years ago in China were trying to, you know, make a reference to because some people, for reasons we now understand better, lived longer and had more potent lives, whereas other people didn't. And the term in Chinese medicine was just Qing. But now we can look even more deeply and say, oh, here's another uh, molecule that modulates the stress response in a very deep and fundamental way. So again, the research is really new. Uh, I'm really excited about it. And I'll share more with you about that when we have more precise details. So I've talked about uh, CBD as an allostatic modulator, and that's a fun word to say. And I think we can appreciate allostasis means kind of at the extremes and bouncing back. But I want to give you a couple of images uh, with respect to how your receptor system works. Mostly because um, if you don't really get the jargon and you don't really spend much time thinking about how your body works, this is all just going to sound like words you may want to repeat at a dinner party someday. So what I'm going to ask you to do for a moment is imagine a volcano. And that volcano is on a planet. And when you look at a cell, it looks like a planet. And when you look at a cell receptor, it looks like a volcano on a planet. So when you're thinking of uh, receptor site function and a planet, you could say that, uh, and I'm kind of having some fun with the science fiction imagery here, but if you were to take a spaceship and have it land inside the volcano and deliver something inside the planet and or pick something up and take it out of the planet and or land on the volcano and yell messages into the volcano to talk to the planet, that's in a way, in a kind of goofy way, what your receptor sites are like. So when you're thinking of allostasis uh, or allostatic allostatic modulation of your receptors, what's actually happening in the sense of the imagery is it changes the shape and the size of the volcano. 
So if the volcano suddenly gets really small or really square, then it's only going to be open to very specific kind of neurotransmitter interactions. If it gets really wide and, and really uh, big and open to everybody, now that receptor is more capable of interacting with the rest of the body uh, in the sense of exchanging information and nutrients and waste. So it's really all about volcanoes in the sense of imagery. Now, there's another part of this that um, has to do with addiction. So I mentioned that within your nervous system, your neurons basically send a neurotransmitter from one to the other. And I kind of use the imagery of throwing a ball. So now I'm going to use a different bit of imagery. So I'm going to ask you to image uh, or imagine that you're looking at a bird with a baby bird and the mama bird is one neuron and the baby bird is the other neuron. And the mama bird is going to feed the baby bird a worm. Now I'm not making this like I'm talking to five-year-olds. I'm just trying to get started with something because it, it will make sense. So that's a normal neurotransmitter activity. Mama bird gives the worm to the baby bird to the baby bird or uh, one neuron gives a neurotransmitter to another neuron and the message just goes down the chain. Now when you're looking at the inside of someone's brain uh, or nervous system when they're under the influence of an addictive chemical, what's happening is, say if I was using uh, alcohol a lot and that was causing neurotransmitters to be overproduced around dopamine, uh, now the mama bird has a big basket of worms. And what your brain does in an adaptive capacity is it proliferates more baby bird receptors or a bunch more volcanoes that want the dopamine. As long as you keep drinking and producing enough worms for the baby birds, you're happily addicted and you're not suffering. As soon as you remove the alcohol, as soon as you remove the basket of worms, now you have bazillions and, well, billions anyway, of receptor sites screaming in a subconsciously and sometimes tangibly painful way for their dopamine. And unless you've ever come out of an addictive phase in your life and gone through all of the withdrawal pain and, and disorientation, uh, please just acknowledge to yourself one day in the mirror, you have no idea what you're talking about because until you've been through that, it's just an idea. The pain people go through when they're coming off of, especially pain killing addictive substances is pretty undescribable. Uh, luckily, I've never been addicted to anything that hard in my life. I'm just wanting to bring to your attention that the intensity of that biochemistry around neurological receptors can be really, really hard to change. And again, when we look at CBD, again, as an allostatic modulator or something that can rearrange and, and uh, help your volcanoes or receptors become more resilient, the sooner you're going to be able to get through that very difficult process. And it'll probably be considerably less intensely disorienting and painful. So here's a couple of examples. When we look at CBD uh, as a positive allostatic influence, uh, one way that that happens is that CBD can actually change the structure or the shape of the volcano or the receptor for GABA. And GABA is one of your primary inhibitory or relaxing and calming neurotransmitters. So when you think of CBD and how it affects anxiety, the easiest way to reason that out is, well, it makes the, the GABA A receptor or the, that specific volcano bigger and just the right shape to receive GABA as a molecule, which is often uh, 
which is actually a bit larger than other neurotransmitters. So it's, again, just to give you that mental image of, okay, wow, you can use CBD to effectively change the traffic in your entire nervous system around calming yourself down. And that's obviously going to work better if you have GABA or its substrates in your body. Uh, you can use those chewable GABA tablets. They're often more absorbable uh, and activating through your vagus nerve uh, when you're using CBD uh, from a research perspective. Uh, CBD can also have what is called a negative allostatic effect, uh, and that's mostly on what's called your CB1 receptor, and that's the one that actually uh, connects with THC to induce the high. So one effect of CBD by downregulating your CB1 receptor is you don't get as high as fast or as intensely high, and the benefit or the high of THC uh, lasts longer. So, you know, most really healthy cannabis plants have a good balance of both. Some of the strains of cannabis are very, very high, almost 30% in THC and very low in CBD, which can make for some fairly dangerous uh, cannabis, especially for young people. So maybe we could make some compact as a society that until you're 25 years old, you're not allowed to have anything stronger than a four to one. Uh, not that I have any control over that. It's just an idea to throw it out there. CBD is also well known to activate one of your primary uh, serotonin receptors, which helps regulate the whole serotonin system, which is actually a very complex neurophysiological system. Uh, it can regulate things like anxiety, addictive cravings, appetite, sleep, your perception of pain, uh, your disposition towards nausea, and actually physically vomiting. So CBD can really help people, again, without even getting high, by changing some of the sensitivity to those serotonin receptors, making serotonin more bioavailable or to get through those volcanoes better. And if you have low serotonin, your perception of pain is often 400% or four times worse than the person standing next to you. So if you and I were walking through a crowded room and we both stubbed our toe, the one of us with low serotonin is going to be screaming and the one of us with normal serotonin is going to be wondering what's so bad about bumping your foot. When it comes to actual addictive cravings, it's the same math. A person who has regular serotonin physiology might crave, I don't know, a cinnamon bun with their coffee a little bit. A person with very low serotonin would probably be trying to plan an escapade to steal all of the cinnamon buns and run into the back alley and eat them or something fun like that. So maintaining a balanced serotonin system is good for your well-being on many, many levels, but especially your just sense of present, felt sense state of resilience. When it comes to the treatment, especially of nausea and vomiting, uh, it turns out that CBDA, the CBDAA or, or the acid version, is actually better at helping people with nausea and vomiting than CBD itself. Uh, I've seen this work very, very well with people who are going through chemotherapy, where if they mix CBD and CBDA together, then they're getting a much better uh, overall benefit with respect to nausea. As yet, there isn't a lot of really specific research on exactly how THC and CBD affect uh, epigenetic function and neuroplasticity, uh, but there is a lot of sort of uh, empirical or suggested uh, implications and evidence. So hopefully within the next few years, we're going to start to see even more around that and to find the best uh, cannabinoids to regulate your endocannabinoid system around epigenetic function and your neuroplasticity. Although most people who are experienced with this medicine 
uh, who are working with their neuroplasticity would say that definitely it's made a, a massive difference as well. So I'm just going to do a very quick aside before I finish up. When I'm working with patients with autoimmunity, I'm often working with patients with trauma because the chronic pain and symptoms of chronic illness can actually affect your nervous system in a similar way uh, to trauma. Obviously, people with addiction uh, almost always have some kind of trauma uh, underlying the reason why they're addicted. So that's a lot of really profound benefits. Less pain, less nausea, better sleep, less stiffness, better stress tolerance, better volcano function, if you will. Uh, and many other benefits actually make CBD a wonder drug. And I have heard other research clinicians say, we might as well just start calling it the God molecule because it does everything that makes people well. It's profoundly beneficial with respect to autoimmunity, complex trauma, and addiction. And um, I cannot encourage you enough if you're dealing with any of those or all of those to find an experienced cannabis clinician to help you uh, make sure you're using it as accurately and effectively as possible and as safely as possible. So there are a few uh, contraindications for cannabinoids. First one is you don't want to take it around uh, other medications unless necessary. So right now about half of the adult population takes at least one prescription medication and at least 75% of people are taking something over the counter and or a fistful of supplements every day. The fastest growing population of people using medical cannabis are seniors, and a lot of them are taking between 5 and 15 different pharmaceuticals every day. So the biggest and most important contraindication is just jamming up your liver. So most of the pharmaceuticals, about 75% of them, have to move through your P450 cytochromic enzyme system in your liver. And both THC and CBD have to move through that part of your liver to be made bioactive in the specific ways that they do. So in my experience, it's best to take your CBD or your THC two hours before you would take your pharmaceuticals or at least an hour, hour and a half afterwards. So I'm just going to say that again. If you're taking a lot of pharmaceuticals and or other medications or you're still addicted to other, uh, you say drugs or alcohol, do your absolute best to try and keep a two-hour window between your consumption of those substances and your use of medical cannabis because then it won't be medical cannabis if you take it at the same time you're taking alcohol because the way it moves through your body and the disorientation uh, is so much stronger that your body can habituate to that and then it's very hard to feel satisfied when you're trying to come off now both of these things at the same time. So keep that two-hour window uh, active. And again, that's the first thing you're going to be dealing with when you work with a clinician is harm reduction and avoiding contraindications. There is some recent research on the use of CBD and pharmaceuticals. And so far, there hasn't been any really profound negative outcomes uh, in general. And there has been some research that suggests using uh, hemp oil or full-spectrum CBD is less likely to cause a jam up in your liver than it would be if you were using a CBD isolate. So just another reason why full-spectrum oils can be a lot better and safer in the long run. Another contraindication has to do with the fact that about 20% of people from a European ancestry and Middle Eastern ancestry 
about 10% of people with uh, African ancestry. And I think it's about 5% of people from Asia in the sense of ancestry have what's called THC aversion, which means when they get high, they get really, really unhappy or really paranoid um, and, and or just really dissociative and, and don't like the experience. Or it has happened that people can have a mild psychotic break and just sort of lose it and end up in a three-day hold in the hospital. Don't recommend that. Never done it, don't want to, but I don't imagine that's a lot of fun. I would also encourage people who are prone to any kind of neurological inflammatory condition, uh, especially around depression and anxiety, insomnia, and anything more complex autoimmune in the neurological uh, sense, to uh, be very careful if you're going to be using a sativa because you're much more likely to have a lot of social anxiety or paranoia with a, a pure sativa source of cannabis um, just because it's a hyper-motivating, hyper-creative kind of cannabis. And if you're already low in neurotransmitter regulation and you are having a very negative, say, three weeks in a row, and then you take something that is hyper-stimulating and hyper-focusing, so you're super focused on those negative thoughts, that's the reason why people tend to have a, a kind of paranoid reaction. And about 85% of people who have that reaction to cannabis are having it to a sativa. Some people have it to an indica, but it's, it's more likely to have that kind of a panic attack from sativas. So it's best to use uh, hybrids if, if that's a concern. And that's, that's sort of the fun part of medical cannabis is you do have to spend a bit of time finding out what strains work the best for you. CBD has about an 18-hour half-life or window of activity in your body. So a lot of clinicians recommend taking it just once a day. Because my focus is often on highly inflammatory immune cascades and autoimmune processes, it's been my experience clinically that people who choose themselves to use cannabis, uh, who use it three or four times a day, especially with other cofactors, do a lot better. And this is why. So let's say I'm having a mild TH17 cytokine flare-up and things are getting worse fairly quickly and I'm having a hard time. And I take my doctor's recommended CBD once a day. And I might feel better uh, for about six hours and then I might start feeling bad again. And that's because your immune system is constantly uh, replicating and making more new immune uh, attack cells and memory B cells and things that direct your immune system towards more inflammation. So if I take CBD once a day and the CBD binds to the CB2 receptors on a lot of your immune cells and then five hours later your body's produced another mass of immune cells, well those cells don't have any CBD attached to the receptors to regulate their activity. So sometimes you have to take your CBD two or three times a day when you're having a flare-up and then drop it back when the flare-up settles down. So just another little bit of in, uh, information that may help you from my experience as a patient. Recommended dosage for most people from a research point of view is uh, about 30 milligrams a day if you're doing it once a day. If you're having a flare-up, then maybe 10 to 20 milligrams three times a day until things settle down and then drop it back down to, say, 20 twice a day, then 30 once a day, or maybe 40 once a day. It really depends. Everyone's a little bit different. Body weight can have uh, a lot to do with that. And obviously, the momentum of the flare-up has a lot to do with that. For people who are going through a profoundly difficult time, uh, are prone to panic attacks, or your PTSD is just off the rails, 
some people have taken up to uh, 300 milligrams of CBD uh, at a given time for those uh, for relief from those particular experiences. And people who are dealing with cancer uh, sometimes are taking up to 100 milligrams or more uh, morning and evening of CBD in concert with many other cofactors and often very high amounts of THC. Uh, I'm not going to get into that in this episode because it's more, much more specific and uh, this is meant to be just sort of a general introduction. I think I've mentioned this two or three times, but I just want to finish up uh, by making sure I say this one more time. When you take some cofactors or augmenting allies with your CBD, you're going to get much more medical impact and benefit, much more symptom relief. You're going to be spending less money on the CBD um, because it just works better. It's a multi-tool. It needs you to tell it what you want it to do, or it's going to try and do everything. And uh, as cool as that might be in the long term, if you have something acute, you really need to kind of train the CBD to do what you want it to do. The only thing I've seen clinically that's a bit of a downside for cannabis uh, is that for some people, they end up with uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or CHS. And that just means anytime you use cannabis, you get nauseous and throw up instead of get relief from nausea. And there's some complex ideas and theories underlying that. But I'm just putting that out there. If you are a person who's fairly chronic or you have a lot going on and you're using cannabis and it's not helping you and in fact it's making you more nauseous and making you throw up, then you might want to make sure you can rule out that it's not CHS because um, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but at the same time you don't want to be taking something that's making you worse. So that's a fairly rare situation, but I just wanted to bring that up to make sure this is a pretty complete conversation. Uh, so that covers most of what I wanted to say. Uh, I just wanted to leave off with this last thing. I've been developing a course called Medical Cannabis for Patients, Clinicians, and Caregivers. Uh, I've got a lot of other things on my plate right now, so I haven't been working on that for the last couple of months. But since I'm doing this podcast and the possibility that you may hear this and want to learn more about it, or if you're a clinician, a patient, or a caregiver who really wants to understand how this medicine works, let me know because if there's enough people who want to take that course, then I'm going to be more motivated to finish it and record it and have it up uh, for people online. It'll be about eight and a half, nine hours, and that will cover more or less everything you would need to know about the entire physiology and function of the plant and cover enough broad case studies for clinicians to give you a sense of what you're really doing within people's bodies and what you want to be really careful of with harm reduction and with respect to contraindications. So please let me know if that's something you want to go and get certified in uh, just so that I can spend my time focusing on the things that uh, most people want my help with. So I hope you enjoyed all of the uh, information today. I hope you're okay and enjoying with the solo casts for a while that I'm doing. And again, if there's a specific topic uh, or subject you would really like to hear me go into a deep dive geek out about, it's kind of a fun thing to do, uh, let me know because that would be great. And I'm really curious because now I'm doing this more consistently and I'm talking, I think, in my mind more coherently to you directly because I can imagine you sitting for some reason more on the other side of this than I could before. I would really love your feedback about how to make the show better. Uh, and again, uh, topics that would be things you'd be really interested and excited about hearing about. 
So any feedback would be great. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe and throw out a comment because uh, otherwise it's kind of like an echo chamber without an echo. So let me know uh, anything that would make this more fun and more beneficial for you. And the next episode will be on the four branches of breathwork. So uh, we'll be doing a little bit of experiential practice in that podcast uh, and a lot of really crazy geek out on the physiology, the neurology, and uh, immunology of breathwork and the different kinds of breathwork and why people have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years because uh, it's free medicine and it's amazing and, as you can imagine, it works so much better with cannabis. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're having a great day, and I hope to connect with you again in the next episode. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.